Okay, once again, very good to see all of you today. Glad that you're with us this morning. We've been preaching a series on the Gospel of Mark and working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, but I want to have a, I've got a kind of a long introduction again today of a couple of things we want to deal with. So let me tell you a story as we start today and we'll look at a different passage of Scripture. Several years ago, there was a fellow who was stopping by to visit me here regarding the Bible. He was reading the Bible. He had a lot of questions. I was happy to try to answer them as best I could. He was coming by every month or so, and we had what I thought were very productive discussions about the Lord and the Scripture and his own personal belief system and his personal spirituality as as he viewed it. But after a number of visits, he told me that what he was really after was that he was trying to find a way to harmonize the Bible with his own spiritual belief system. I mentioned to him that Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God the Father except through him. So I said there is a very exclusive nature to the Bible way and faith in Jesus. In the Old Testament, some of you who were with us uh, many, uh, a number of years ago remember when we preached a series of messages from Isaiah chapter 40 to Isaiah chapter 46 and spent quite a number of weeks there. You remember that we found in that section of Scripture at least ten times where the true and living God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There has never been any God like me. There never will be any God like me. I am the only God. There is no other God. There are at least ten times in those chapters where God makes statements like that. You may be able to even find a couple more, but I assure you there are at least ten. You also may remember the Ten Commandments, and of course they're not the Ten Suggestions, as people say. They are the Ten Commandments. Number one is, you shall have no other gods before me, which we also understand that command is indicating we cannot have any gods in addition to him, because he is the only God who's there. So any other God that we try to create in our own minds or in our own system of spirituality is a fake. There's only one God. He's told us who he is and what he expects. So if the God that people say they are worshiping is not the God who has revealed himself in the Bible, then it's a fake God. If we aren't coming to the true and living God in his way and on his terms, then it's a false belief system. You see, you can't combine the truth with error. You can't combine right and wrong theology and doctrine. You can't just mix them together and make your own flavor of spirituality. I mean, you can do that. People are doing it all the time. But you can't do it and expect God to accept it. God has said that He is God. There is no other God. He alone is to be worshipped and obeyed. And if we are going to come to Him, we have to come to Him His way. We can't just make up our own rules and just come to God however we feel like it. Uh, The God who created this universe also created us, and he designed the plan for forgiveness, and he explained the reason why we need it. So truth and error cannot be mixed together with the hope that God will accept it because we were really sincere and we really meant it. 
Let me show you an interesting passage in the Old Testament where this was attempted, and you can probably identify many modern errors in this passage as we look at it. So turn, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. We'll be in Mark in just a moment, but I want to just introduce our thoughts today with this passage of Scripture. 2 Kings chapter 17. To give you kind of the historical context of what is happening, in case you're not familiar with Old Testament history, you remember the first king of Israel was Saul, followed by the well-known King David, then his son Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom divided. They had a major political upheaval in the kingdom, and ten tribes gave their allegiance to a king who called his kingdom Israel. Remember, there are twelve tribes in the nation of Israel. Ten tribes gave their allegiance to a king who called his kingdom Israel. They took the northern portion of the nation. They established their capital in Samaria. The other two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they kept their allegiance with the descendants of David, and they called their kingdom Judah. And they maintained control over the southern part of the nation with their kingdom remaining in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, Israel, lasted for about 200 years. They had 20 different kings during that time. None of them followed the Lord. They were all ungodly men who led their tribes into spiritual corruption. The southern kingdom, Judah, lasted for about 375 years. They had 19 kings and one queen. The queen was wicked and 11 of the kings were ungodly, but they did have eight kings who followed the Lord. Now when the Lord brought judgment to Israel, the northern kingdom, he brought the Assyrians down from the northern parts above them to overrun the country and conquer it and carry everybody away as captives. And you probably remember, because it's a little more well known, that it was the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar who conquered Judah about 175 years later, carried off most of the people to Babylon. Now this situation that we're going to read here in 2 Kings 17 is, is when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. If you're into history, I know some of you just love historical dates, 722 years B.C., About 721, 722 B.C. is when this occurred, and the northern kingdom of of Israel fell to the Assyrians. In fact, let's look in verse 5. I'm just going to give you a scan of the passage here. Verse 5 of 2 Kings 17. Notice it says, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hoshea, that was the king of Syria, Hoshea was one of the kings of Israel, the last one. The king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria, placed them in Hala by the Habar, the river of Gozan, on the cities of the Medes. So it was that the children of the Lord had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and so forth. Now jump down to verse 22. I'm sorry, verse 23. Until the Lord had removed Israel out of his sight, as he had said by all his servants the prophets, so Israel 
was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is this day. He's talking about when they got carried out. Now look what happens. Verse 24. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Savarvian, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord, had no respect for God. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them, because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Let me pause there for just a moment. You've got to understand where these people are coming from. They think there's all kinds of gods all over the place, all kinds of spirit beings everywhere that they have to try to keep them happy. There's a god of this river, there's a god of this mountain, there's a god of this animal, there's a god of this, there's a god of that, there's a god of this valley, there's a god of all these things. And so they say, while these lions are coming in, there must be some spirit around here that we don't know how to make him happy. Because they're sending these lions in. All this bad stuff is happening to us. And so they send a message to the king of Assyria. And they say, hey, there's, there's got to be some divine deity down here someplace, some spirit being somewhere that we, that we don't know anything about because we don't know what kind of rituals we're supposed to do to keep him happy. And apparently he's mad at us because he keeps sending these lions down in here to eat us. Sounds kind of familiar in, in a lot of different ways. And, and so what does the king of Assyria do? Verse 27, the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. Of course, the God they're talking about is the God of the universe, not just the God of Israel. Then one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord, supposedly. But look at verse 29. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. And look at verse 34. I mean, again, you can read. In fact, I'll give you a homework assignment. Read the whole chapter sometime this week. You can kind of catch all this. We're just hitting the high points for the sake of time. Look at verse 34. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law or the commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power in an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifices. And the statutes, ordinances, and the law and commandments which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods." Down in verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord, yet they served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing this as their fathers did even to this day. By the way, just a sideline note for some of you uh, very sharp Bible students. This is where the Samaritans came from. Okay, when you wonder why the Jews and the Samaritans had so many conflicts during the time of the Lord Jesus, this is where the Samaritans came from, right out of this chapter. They took 
all of these rituals they had from all of these other nations, all these religious ceremonies, and they tried to mix them together with the worship of the true God. And God, God did not accept that. God says, you, 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 you are, you are worshiping me. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. That is, I respect God. I know He's up there. I know there's some great powerful divine being there, but I'm still going to pray to this idol, and I'm still going to give offerings to this spirit, and I'm still going to do this and this and this and then this, and I'm, and I'm going to keep building more idols, and I'm going to keep doing all this, but I, I know God's up there. Yeah, He's there. Yeah, there's a powerful God up there. He's there. What are they doing? They're trying to blend all these things together. They were mixing the worship of the true and living God with the worship of idols and false spirits. They were carving fetishes and statues and doing ceremonies to false gods while at the same time adding the ceremonies of the law of Moses to try to make this new God happy in this new place where they were living. God would not accept it and God did not accept it because we cannot mix truth and error. We cannot mix the worship of the true and living God with the worship of false beliefs. Now look at Mark chapter 2. Giving you that background because what Jesus is speaking about here in these few verses that we're going to look at deals with this exact issue. Mark chapter 2, Jesus had been preaching the gospel. Remember the first century person would understand the word gospel as announcing the news of exciting big changes coming because new leadership is coming. Uh, the word preach simply means to proclaim. So he's making something publicly known. So Jesus is preaching the gospel. He is preaching publicly, announcing that something is about to change and it involves him. He's been proving over and over and over again that he is indeed the promised Savior that God's people had been waiting for for several thousand years. Remember also there had been no prophetic voice, no prophet preaching in Israel for 400 years. And then so when John the baptizer arrives on the scene, followed in a few months by this exciting new young rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, the whole nation is buzzing. Excitement is high. Expectation is high. It's the talk of the whole countryside. Who is this rabbi? You ever heard him preach in the countryside? You ever heard him teach in the synagogue? Man, this guy's incredible. He has the power of God on him. He healed a fellow who has leprosy. He just touched him and poof, it was gone. He healed a guy who was a quadriplegic. The guy couldn't even sit up. His friends carried him around on a stretcher. Jesus was down there. He just healed him in the snap of a finger. The guy got up and he rolled up his bed and he walked out of the room. I mean, this, this rabbi not only heals anybody with any condition, he, he seems to do it in, the, in, just, in just the blink of an eye. And he assured the guy who was the quadriplegic, he told him his sins were forgiven. I mean, man, this guy, he talks like God or something. And he sure seems to have the power of God. Because he just heals anybody and everybody with any condition in the blink of an eye. And man, you should see those Pharisees steam when he does stuff like that. It's so fantastic to watch. Don't tell the Pharisees I said anything. They'll throw me out of the synagogue. But it's really great to see this new young rabbi just turn those guys inside out. Now you know I'm just painting a mental picture for you. Okay, but the scripture clearly says that the crowds were astonished and amazed 
and the scribes and the Pharisees were angry and indignant. Jesus was extremely popular with the average folks, but he was a very real threat to the existing Jewish religious system. And he meant to be a real threat to the religious establishment because we've seen in the last couple of weeks expressions of forgiveness and grace from the Lord Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this exciting news about our Savior is that he is a forgiving Savior. He is filled with grace for the outcasts of society. He is just looking for repentance and faith. He's looking for people who know they have a spiritual need and they come to Jesus to meet that need. And in our passage today, verses 18 to 22, we're going to read, we see Jesus in another confrontation with the religious establishment. And you know, as we study our fact, let's read the passage and then I'll keep going there. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting. Then they came and said to him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but new wine must be put into new wineskins. As we study our way through Mark, or any of the Gospels for that matter, we see that Jesus' confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees almost always centered around fasting, Sabbath-keeping, or his open associations with folks that the Pharisees considered to be sinners. Of course, his claims to God absolutely infuriated the religious establishment. But we see one of these confrontations in our text today. And the, the bottom line in this issue here, with the, with the Pharisees coming in with this question, is the, the, the very bottom line is, you don't do things our way, Jesus. We've been doing this for generations. And now you are totally ignoring all of our traditions. Even the disciples of John the Baptist are kind of wondering about you. Do you know that according to the law of Moses, there was only one required fast? There were many times that fasting is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. There were one-day fasts, there were three-day fasts, some of them much longer. Both Moses and Elijah fasted for 40 days. Esther fasted for three days before she went into the king. David fasted for seven days when his first child with Bathsheba was dying. The whole nation fasted as they mourned the death of Saul and Jonathan. Daniel fasted as he confessed the sins of Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah fasted as they pleaded with God for his mercy on the nation of Israel. People in the Old Testament fasted in times of grief or, they, or as they were praying for forgiveness or protection or deliverance from enemies. Fasting normally meant not eating anything and only drinking water. Sometimes it was a restricted diet for a set time, as in, as in Daniel. He decided in chapter 1 of Daniel he would only eat certain things for 10 days. Sometimes it was an absolute fast, not eating or drinking anything for a day or a night. 
from sunrise to sunset or from sunset to sunrise, whichever, whichever way. Uh, an absolute fast, not eating and drinking anything for that 12 hour or 14 hours. Fasting was designed to demonstrate humility before the Lord as we plead for forgiveness or protection or deliverance. But in the Old Testament, there was only one required fast. That was on the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the seventh month on the Hebrew calendar. On our calendar, it falls somewhere between mid-September, mid-October. In fact, we call it today, uh, still today, even on our calendars, it's what we use the Hebrew name, Yom Kippur. When I was a kid, we called it Yom Kippur. But uh, Yom, Yom Kippur, that is the Day of Atonement. Falls in the fall of the year. That was a one-day fast that God required for the entire nation. Because people were commanded to mourn over their sin and plead for God's forgiveness. And all other fasting was all voluntary. This That's the only one that was prescribed in the law of Moses. But somewhere along the line, several generations before Jesus was born, the Pharisees had decided that fasting should be mandatory. And that it should be done twice a week, on Monday and on Thursday. Remember the famous story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple in the Gospel of Luke? We've quoted many. Remember the Pharisee praying, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a sinner like other men are. Lord, I thank you I'm not like this tax collector over here who's trying to pray to. You remember, as he starts, as he starts to list his supposed spiritual accomplishments, he says in his spiritual accomplishments, I fast twice in the week. He's doing the Monday-Thursday fast, which the Pharisees said. Now, if you want to fast twice a week, go for it. But don't go around bragging about it. You know, giving money to the poor and praying and fasting, those were all things that the Pharisees did to make themselves look good. Jesus mentioned all of that when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. Look back at Matthew chapter 6. We'll just take a brief a brief jaunt through that for just a second. Matthew chapter 6, as Jesus is preaching the very famous Sermon on the Mount. Jesus mentions all three of those things. Giving money and praying and fasting. He talks about all three of them. Matthew chapter 6. Look at verse 1 of Matthew 6. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Then he says in verse 5, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. And then look down at verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. 
Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So you've got those three issues, giving money, praying, and fasting. And the Pharisees like to do it way out, way out in the open. They come into the synagogue and somebody blow a little trumpet for them. And they say, I'm going to give such and such a gift to the synagogue today. And they drop it in. And you know, I mean, it's, it just, I mean, you think, did, did, did they really do that? Yeah, Jesus said they did. And they would, when they were fasting, they'd, you know, mess up their hair and mess up their clothes, throw a little dirt in their face, you know. And, oh, boy, it's really a rough day. I haven't had anything to eat since last night. You know, I've been, I've been doing my, my fast on Monday and Thursday. And, oh, I'm going to go. Now, Jesus says, do that. You know, do those things. Do all three of those things. Give money, pray, and fast. He said, but don't make a public spectacle out of it. He said, are you, you're just a hypocrite doing it for, uh, for men. Are we giving, praying, and fasting to look good in the eyes of people or as a way to serve and honor the Lord? So when Jesus responds to this criticism, and it's, it's not really an honest question. They're asking him a question, but it's not really an honest question. It's actually a criticism. You know, why, why don't your disciples fast? You know, we, we do. And, and Jesus answers them with three interesting analogies, three word pictures, three metaphors, whichever word you wish to use. And he is teaching two very important principles. The first thing he says in verse 19, back in Mark 2, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Weddings are happy events, Jesus is saying. Why would anyone fast during a wedding feast? It makes no sense at all. But one day, he says, the bridegroom is going to be taken away. And that's a very interesting phrase because the verb tense in the Greek New Testament for this, it indicates that someone is going to do this to the bridegroom. Not that he will leave, but he will be taken away by others. And when that happens, he says, my disciples will fast. There'll be grief and loss and suffering and trauma. Then my disciples will fast. Right now, he said, it's a happy time. It's an exciting time. It's a joyful time. But one day, that's all going to change. And then they'll fast. And of course, we know what Jesus is talking about. Because one day, he was taken away forcibly by other people. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was crucified. And I'm sure the disciples were more inclined to fast in those days. But Jesus says, right now, this is happy. This is, this is a time of rejoicing. And then he said, the bridegroom is here. And everyone's excited. The wedding's about to begin. Ah, but he said, one day, somebody's going to come in. He's going to take the bridegroom. Oh, he said, I guarantee you my disciples will fast in those days. You know, it, it is interesting that this is the first time in Jesus' ministry where he refers to himself as the bridegroom. The apostles used this word picture. True followers of Jesus are his bride, and he is the groom, and we will be joined together with him for all of eternity. Uh, but this is the first time Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. This is also the first time that Jesus drops a hint about what is coming for him. He is going to be carried away by others. 
And we, of course, we see it because we know the rest of the story, but we can be sure that it went right past everybody there. That's the first analogy used to teach that now is the time for rejoicing. The bridegroom has showed up for the wedding, but pretty soon things are going to turn dark. And I assure you, my disciples will fast then. But then this principle that kind of goes back to our 2 Kings 17 passage, Jesus gives them two stories, two other analogies that, that tells them this. He says, what I am teaching cannot be mixed with what you are teaching, he says to the Pharisees. When they look at him and say, well, why we fast twice a week? Why don't you and your disciples fast? Jesus is basically telling them with these two analogies, what I'm teaching cannot be mixed with what you are teaching. In, in ancient times, you had linen made out of flax fibers, cotton and wool. That's what you made your clothing out of. Now, among the very wealthy, there was some imported silk, but average folks made clothing from linen, cotton and wool. That's all there was. And you would never, 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 Jesus says, take a brand new piece of cloth and use it to patch an older garment. Because when it would get wet, whether by washing or through working, it would shrink and it would tear away from the seams and it would ruin the whole garment. That's what he means there when he says nobody sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. So he said, what I'm preaching is new. It's different. It can't be mixed with what you're teaching. What, what you're teaching is old and worn out and it's done for and you, it's not even biblical and you don't even have the facts right and I'm coming along preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. You can't take what I'm teaching and try and patch it onto what you're teaching. It can't work. Now there's a lot of misunderstanding in my opinion regarding wine in ancient times. It, it is commonly believed, many people have heard it said over and over and over again, that ancient, all ancient wine was an intoxicating beverage and it's impossible to preserve grape juice in the ancient world and all the water was bad to drink so everybody made wine that was exactly like modern wines today. They were done a hundred times from many different directions. You just pour grape juice into a wine skin and then whatever happens, happens. Now all of those commonly believed ideas are incorrect. Uh, there is ample historical evidence that there were many, many ways to preserve grape juice and store it. The most common one being to boil the fresh squeezed grape juice until it becomes more like the consistency of syrup. Then it will not ferment, it will not spoil, it will not rot. It can be stored in clay jars that were coated internally with beeswax. Or it could be placed in oak barrels that were coated internally with pine rosin or beeswax, placed in cooler locations, places we would call a root cellar, and it could keep for months. When it was ready to be used, it would be poured out, mixed with water, because you wouldn't want to drink grape syrup, and it, and it would be served that way. The alcohol content of boiled grape juice was of virtually no consequence. There were, there were obviously fermented wines, but boiled grape juice, grape syrup, mixed with water and sometimes certain spices, very common and was one of the ordinary common drinks of the day. However, if you were traveling, you needed something portable and something unbreakable. So when a goat was butchered, the skin was generally removed in one piece, turned inside out, tanned to prevent souring and decay, rubbed with pine or juniper resin, and used as a wineskin. 
Tanned goat skin, they claim, is tough but very pliable, and rubbed with, with resin, it would seal the syrup inside. The neck portion of the goat skin would be served, it would be used as a pouring spout. And after the, after the goat skin was empty, then in order for it to be reused, the goat skin would have to be soaked in water, and washed and rinsed and soaked in water re repeatedly. They let it dry, then they would retreat it with, with, with resin, because if you didn't do that, if you just added more juice to it, added more so of the grape syrup to it, then, then all of the sediment that had, that had gotten embedded in the pores of the leather would, would begin from the opening and closing of the, of the skin from, from the last load, then it would begin to sour and it would ruin all of the new grape juice. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That you don't take a brand new boiled syrup grape juice and pour it into an old wineskin that hasn't been washed out and retreated. You have to recondition the whole thing. If you don't, then it's going to spoil and sour and break and ruin everything. And interestingly, there are two Greek words for new in this passage. Uh, in fact, all throughout the New Testament. There's two different Greek words. They're all translated new in English because we just have one word, new. But one of them means new in time. The other one means it's new in quality or condition. One of these days, if I, uh, if I, if I collapse one day and you get a new pastor, okay, he will not be new in time. He wasn't just born yesterday. But he will be new. He will be different. He'll be new, a, a new quality, a new, a, a new condition. So you got new in time, brand new. You got new in, in quality. Somebody might say, hey, you got a new pickup. Well, no, I didn't really get a new pickup. It's just new to me. It's not new. It's 10 years old. It's got 150,000 miles on it, but it's new to me. You understand the difference in the way that we use new. Okay, in verse 22, when Jesus says, New wine must be put into new wineskins. He uses two different words for new there. New wine is the new in time. The brand new, fresh squeezed, boiled, treated, grape syrup, if you want to call it that. That new wine has to be put into new in quality, new in condition wineskins, reconditioned wineskins. If you don't do that, he says, you will ruin the juice. And they all, they all did that all of the time. They understood it. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Which brings us back to Jesus' main point here. Why don't we fast on Mondays and Thursdays, they, they say to him. Jesus says, because what I am teaching cannot be mixed with what you are teaching. Now, what is the message in all of this for all of us? It's simply this. You can't just add Jesus to your existing religion. You, 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 you can't. You, you can't. If, if you are going to truly follow Jesus, it is a total replacement. The old way has to go. You can't just say, well, I'm going to add Jesus to all the stuff I've already been doing. 
I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to read the Bible, but I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go to this ceremony and that ceremony. I'm going to be part of this religion and that religion. And, and, and you know, Saturday night I'll go to this church and Sunday night I'll go to this church. And, and, and I'm just going to kind of mix it all together in one big pot. And hopefully I got all my bases covered. And, and when I die, everything will be okay because I've done everything that everybody says to do. Lots of folks around here like that. I've talked to some of them. Many years ago, we're having a Bible study. We're still in the Senior Citizen Center. We're going way back. We weren't even in the round hall. We're still in the Senior Citizen Center. Having a Bible study. And so some people were there. And, and, I, and, I, and I said something, just in, in a, a passing remark. I said, uh, I said, you know, baptism is something God commanded to, to, for us to, uh, to demonstrate publicly that we believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're trusting to get us to heaven. But, it, but the actual baptism itself cannot forgive you. And one of the ladies at the Bible study kind of sat up, she said, It can't? I said, No. She said, Here I've been going around getting baptized in all these different churches for nothing? Yeah. I didn't tell her like that, but yeah. See, you can't, you, you, you can't, you can't mix Jesus and the Bible way with everything else. And you, you can't just add it to what you have. If you're going to follow Jesus, it, it is a total replacement. The old way has to go. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God the Father except through me. The Apostle Peter preached in Acts 4, There is no salvation in any other name except the name of Jesus Christ. The Bible way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, cannot be blended with other ways. It cannot be harmonized with unbiblical beliefs. The religious beliefs of the Pharisees and the scribes, it was an old piece of cloth. It was an old, unconditioned wineskin. It can't be mixed in with the way of the Lord Jesus. But rather than bow the knee and repent and believe and receive, they just kept their old cloth and their old brittle wineskins and they refused the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, they were into self-righteousness. Jesus preached grace. They were into denying their sinfulness. Jesus preached repentance from sin. They were proud of their religiousness. Jesus preached humility. They were into external ceremonies. Jesus preached a transformed heart. They loved the approval and acceptance of man. Jesus offered the approval and acceptance of God. They had rituals. Jesus offered relationship. You can't mix it all together. They're diametrically opposed to each other. Just as in the Old Testament, you can't supposedly fear the Lord and then worship false spirits. Jesus is the only way. And may I ask you today, and your friends as you pray for them, where, where do you stand with Him? Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world that is so confused. Oh, there's just such incredible religious confusion. So many say, well, there's, there's only one God. They're true. They're, they're right. But when they start saying there's many ways to get to Him, they're absolutely wrong. It's only one way. 
And we know. You've not only told us who you are, you've told us what you expect and what we're supposed to do. We can't fear the Lord and then add a bunch of other things to it. Or we can't come from false religious backgrounds and then add, add Jesus to what we already have. Lord, I just pray you would help us to be able to communicate these things to our friends, to our loved ones, to those who are trying to seek the Lord but don't know how to get there. May we, Lord, be faithful to you in all of these areas of life. May we not try to to blend old religious ideas with the way of Christ and the way of the Word of God. May we, Lord, put the, the, the new, fresh, the new, fresh, squeezed truth into a new skin. Help us, Lord, to take new cloth and put it on a new garment and not try and blend the old ways. Thank you, Lord, for this great challenge from the words from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And may we, Father, do our best to represent the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.